Thanks for tuning in to the Lake Forest Church Podcast. Lake Forest is a community for people who have given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our churches in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Well, today we conclude our series called Vices and Virtues. And what we've been talking about is that God's grace does not simply rescue us and save us, though it does that, but God's grace also energizes and empowers us to live the kind of lives that he would have us live. So we've been talking about various vices that we can take off and lay aside with God's help and the corresponding virtues that we can put on to live the kind of life that Jesus would have us live. That's what we've been talking about every week. And we have saved the very, very best for last. I'm really excited about our preacher today. Uh, some of you will know her. Rachel Toon, the Reverend Rachel Toon, is an ordained teaching pastor in our denomination. She's a colleague of mine. She's also the uh, Dean of Spiritual Formation at Montreat College in Black Mountain. Uh, and if I had a top 10 list of best preachers I've ever gotten to sit under, she would be at the top. Rachel is outstanding. She is a brilliant thinker, uh, an incredible communicator, and by the way, a rambunctious rebel just like me. So I know you're going to love her. Uh, would you put your hands together and help welcome to the stage the Reverend Rachel Toon. Y'all, oh, Lake Forest, good morning. Oh, that it, it, I know it took you a little bit to get there, so I'll give you another chance. Good morning. Uh, you guys, uh, thank you so much uh, for inviting me back to be with you all this morning. I love, love, love um, coming out to Lake Forest. You guys are kind of my adopted big brother church family. You're totally my tribe. And so uh, being here is just such a real gift to me. So thank you for bringing me here. Um, so Aaron uh, called me to come speak with you all today about wrath. I'm going to tell you why. It's because I'm so good at it. You know, there's like, I'm, I'm good at all the sins, but, but sometimes there's a sin where you are just like particularly top notch. And so I am just an Olympic level when it comes to wrath. So um, are, you, are you all familiar with the Enneagram, that annoyingly insightful personality test? I don't know if you've heard of that, but so I'm an eight on the Enneagram. Yeah. Holla, holla back. So um, the eights are the challengers. Or if that tells you anything. And let me, let me illumine some of this for you. Eights can be described as follows. Eights are called challengers because they're aggressive, confrontational, high-voltage people who approach life the way Alaric and his Visigoths approached Rome. They sack it. Anger is their go-to emotion. It's so close to the surface you can sometimes feel like it's radiating off them like a space heater. And if that doesn't sound like a dean of spiritual formation, well, I really don't know what does. Um, so yes, yeah, so this is what my students have to put up with on a regular basis. So let the record show I'm a seasoned expert on anger. I know my college housemates would be delighted to testify to this. So apparently, when I was in college, I had a cabinet slamming problem. Are there any cabinet slammers? Be honest, don't lie in church. Um, I know you're out there. And so... There, I was a cabinet slammer, and I didn't even really recognize this until I found out years later that my housemates had gone to the hardware store and got the little foam squishy pad things and, like, Rachel-proofed every cabinet in the house. 
Right, so there was that. I also apparently have a rep for, for some Boston road rage. I went to school up in Boston. It was kind of a homecoming for me. Like when everyone's a terrible person when they drive, it's fine, right? Um, but apparently not. Some wrath comes out uh, when I drive. I, I can neither confirm nor deny a certain speeding ticket in the state of North Carolina. Um, so there's that. Or there was the, the juicer incident of 2014 that lives on in memory. So had a housemate of mine who had acquired a juicer for a good deal, which of course means it was missing very important pieces, like the kind that kind of regulates the sound, you know, or the kind that keeps like mangled carrots from going hither and thither. Um, and you can just, you can only come home so many times to, to zucchini shrapnel on the ceiling of your kitchen. Um, and so it's possible, I can neither confirm nor deny, that said juicer took this majestic flying leap off the third story balcony <laughs> and has not been seen since. So all that to say, I feel very qualified to speak to you this morning on the subject of anger uh, because in all seriousness, it has been a besetting sin in my life for as long as I can remember. And I'm not even going to bring up the stories I'm sure my mama would like to offer you. Um, and the fact is God has something to say about anger. Because while it may not be as sexy of a sin as adultery or murder, um, it's just as destructive. So Evagrius Ponticus is a history crush of mine from the 4th century. He was one of the first guys to draft this list of vices that we've been working through. This is what he says about anger. The most fierce passion is anger. In fact, it is defined as a boiling and stirring up of wrath against one who has given injury or is thought to have done so. It constantly irritates the soul, and above all, at the time of prayer, it seizes the mind and flashes the picture of the offensive person before one's eyes. Then there comes a time when it persists longer, is transformed into indignation, stirs up alarming experiences by night. Yeah. Yikes, right? I mean, this is scary stuff, and it should be, because anger is dangerous, destructive stuff. Right? It has this really fascinating ability to suddenly make our world seem very, very small, doesn't it? Somehow, like, we, we zoom in on this thing that we're just obsessively angry about so that nothing else in the universe seems to exist except some stupid juicer, all right, or whatever the case may be. And what we're going to do is we're going to unpack today what we do about that, what we do with that, kind of where some of that comes from. We're going to do it in the book of Colossians chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles. We're going to start with verse 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So what Paul's doing in this particular chapter in Colossians is he's spelling out for us what life in Jesus and what life in Christian community look like, right? And so how he does that is he, he's laying out some of the vices that blow up community, right? You got to talk about how it's going to go wrong, okay? And so the list before we, the one we just read, talks a lot about sexual immorality. Because if you've ever watched reality TV at any point in your life, you know nothing is as efficient at destroying community as sexual sin. But 
Without skipping a beat, Paul jumps right into the next list of relational hand grenades. And it's this one. And I would take note, dear church, that in the eyes of Paul and in the eyes of God, that the following list is just as destructive as sexual sin. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene language. And now we could get a whole year's worth of sermon out of that list. Uh, so we're just going to focus on the first two, on anger and wrath. They are my particular areas of expertise. And so, of course, there are times in life when it is perfectly appropriate and right to be angry, yeah? You should be angry at the injustices that we see in the world around us. You should be angry at that bully who's picking on that smaller kid at school. You should be angry when you find out that your teenagers are participating in behavior that is dangerous and destructive. It's not the anger itself that's intrinsically wrong, right? And, and Paul says this in, in the book of Ephesians. He says, in your anger, do not sin, right? They're not the same thing, but it's not the anger itself that's the issue. It's what it can lead to. And that's what we see here, right? Because this, we're not talking about the righteous anger. We're not talking about the good kind of anger. Because this is the kind of anger that ends up in malice, in slander, in dirty language. All right, so Paul's talking about the kind of anger that blows up into really vicious speech and cruelty towards other people. He's talking about the volcanic outbursts of F-bombs and the passive-aggressive sticky notes that people leave all over the place. Yeah, I know y'all do it. Don't lie. And he's talking to the Enneagram 8s and to the college students that throw juicers off of their, their balconies. And he's talking to the wives that snap at their husbands and the husbands who try to get under her skin and the parents who cuss out their kids or the kids who mouth off at their parents or the friends who just kind of verbally tear each other down. He's talking to anybody with a ferocious temper that explodes on people. Or anybody with that kind of smoldering resentment that, that simmers beneath the surface and just kind of lashes out passive-aggressively. So really, he's talking to everybody Jesus is talking to in his Sermon on the Mount when he says this, But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Yeah, you should be nervous, right? <laughs> That's scary stuff. That's scary stuff. And God takes this really seriously because anger burns stuff down, right? And so Paul's talking to me, and he's talking to you, and it's an alarming word. And Paul's inviting us to leave that whole mess behind us. He's inviting us to put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And why? It's because that, that angry, vengeful, bitter person that mouths off so quickly, that is a cheap facade, a shadow of who God has created you to be. And that's what Paul's saying, if we go back to that verse 10, right, where it talks about being restored in the knowledge of the image of the creator, right, that's a throwback to Genesis 1, which says that you are made in the image of God. And so you are only living into your most real self, your most alive self, when you're living a life that is operating the way God designed it to. 
And we know from the book of James that human anger does not lead to the righteousness that God desires. That's from James chapter 1. And so your anger is distorting your experience of this life. It's poisoning it. And it shatters relationships in your job, in your family, your friends, in your church, because it distorts the image in whom you are made. Ouch. Um, so then we have to ask, now what? Okay, so I get the, all right, I get it's bad, but how do we get rid of that old self? How do we put on this new self? What hope is there for us temperamental folks of whom I am the foremost? And that's what Paul spells out in the next verses. So if you still got your Bibles, we're at verse 12. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So if the first list that we read describes what blows up community, this is the list that talks about what builds it. Because these are the things that actually reflect the character of God that foster trust, that foster healthy community and relationships. It's compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. I mean, which town do you want to live in, town A or town B, right? And so the one we're going to focus on, though, today, because, again, Lord, you can get years of sermons out of this thing. And we're going to talk about patience because patience is the opposite of wrath, but maybe not for the reasons that you think. So I, I told the first servers this too, so I'm going to give you a fair warning. This is a nerd alert, okay? So if you've got glasses, push them up. Um, so what we're going to do, we are going to jump right into the Greek and Hebrew because I'm a massive nerd, unapologetically so, and you're going to be biblical scholars by the time you walk out. So, um, so get ready because I think the American understanding of patience is pathetic, right? It's pathetic. I think we kind of go to this dictionary.com uh, definition where patience is an ability or willingness to suppress restlessness or annoyance when confronted with delay, which I feel like just means you're trying not to be visibly irritated when you're checking out at Walmart, right? Am I right or am I right? I do think we have a meme situation that helps ex kind of expound upon that emotion. And this is incredibly lame, uh, a lame definition of of what this word means. And it's certainly not biblical patience. Biblical patience has so much more substance, so much more personality, so much more grit than that. So, so Greek has several very cool words for patience. And the one that Paul uses here is the word makrothumion. Everyone say makrothumion. Good. Just, see, I told you we were going to be pros by the time you left. So, um, so makrothumion, this is a compound word. It's two words smushed together. Okay, so makros means to take a long time. And thumion is from thumos, which originally meant to boil and eventually came to mean anger, right? You can see the connection. So, so what this word literally means is to be slow to boil, right? We might say long-fused. And uh, when this word shows up elsewhere in Scripture, it's usually translated as slow to anger. So you read, if you read that phrase in your Bible, this could be one of the words that, that expresses that. But here's where it gets really cool, because this Greek word is a translation of a Hebrew phrase. And figuratively, this is the phrase that you read as slow to anger. We tracking? We good? Okay. But literally, what the Hebrew phrase it says is long of nose 
Long of nose. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but so cool. Hebrew is a very concrete language. It doesn't like abstract things. And so the Hebrew word for anger is nostril or nose. Because the idea is when you're mad, your nostrils flare. So think of like a bull in a bullfight. That's the Hebrew idea of what anger is. So when you are slow to anger, you are long of nose, which means you're not quick to fly off the handle, which means you're forbearant, you're long-fused, you're patient. And here's why this matters. This is where all this, this nerdiness comes to a point. This is a phrase that is repeatedly used to describe God. Long-nosed, long-fused, slow to boil, patient. So Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that there's only one way you put off that old self and you put on that new self. There's only one way that you can kick all those nasty little habits that have been plaguing you your whole life, and it's this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So here's the point. How do you overcome that smoldering anger that's just there? You look at Jesus. Jesus really is the answer on this one. Um, you look at Jesus. Because if anger shrinks our whole universe down to this one all-consuming moment, looking at Jesus shifts our perspective back to the eternal, back to what lasts, back to what's ultimately real. And so keep him at the forefront of your mind. Sing to him, think about him, speak his name. Keep him at the center of your world, of your daily life. Just keep him there. Because the more time you spend around Jesus, the more you're going to start to look like him. And we know that's how it works, don't we? That's why you, you get worried about who your friends hang out with at a school. The people we're around affects the person that we become. And our God is slow to anger, long-nosed, long-fused, patient. And we see this all over Scripture. So in, in Exodus 34, when God passes by Moses, he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And then a whole bunch of Old Testament books later, we get to the book of Jonah. Jonah's the guy that got swallowed by the whale, if anybody was tracking in Sunday school, okay? And so at this point, Jonah is whining because God has not completely destroyed and annihilated this city that he was really excited about watching burn. And he's complaining to God. And he's like, God, that's why I ran away to Tarshish, because you're the worst. Because I knew that you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger. And that whole mess is a whole other sermon, so we're not going to get into that. Um, and then we see in 2 Peter, right, where 2 Peter says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So my question is, do you believe this? Because in order to get what Paul's saying, in order to put off that old self, and put on this new self that's compassionate and kind and humble and patient and forgiving. You have to understand that this is who God is. That's his nature. 
Because I think more often than not, when I talk to people and kind of what they envision God to be, they're thinking of that last scene in uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Phenomenal movie. Not the most theologically accurate statement in the world. Um, I think when people think of God, they think of this, wrath, judgment, Nazis, and face melting. Okay? Um, but, and, but here's the deal. I have students every week in my office who come in who grew up in Christian homes. And they will say to me, uh, yeah, my dad's a, just a pretty angry guy. And leave a lot unsaid. Or, yeah, my mom yells a lot. Um, I'm a little jumpy and anxious just because I'm always a little bit braced for when that's going to that's gonna happen. So this is the narrative that I hear from your children and the friends of your children. And I wonder if the reason that Christian parents think this kind of behavior is acceptable is because that's who they believe God to be. Angry, vengeful, just waiting to catch you in a mistake so he can bring down the hammer. Now, there are moments in Scripture, make no mistake, where we witness the wrath of God and its full, just, terrifying fury. But the far more consistent theme in the story of Scripture is this. God is slow to anger, long of nose, slow to boil, patient. He's waiting for you to come home. He's not out to destroy you. He's trying to rescue you. That's who God is. And we're especially reminded of that this week. What day is it today? Exactly. Hence all the cuteness and the palm waving. And the... Um, but as cute as Palm Sunday is, this is the day that marks the beginning, right, of the journey of Jesus to the cross. And in a few days, Jesus is going to be on his knees sweating blood in Gethsemane, begging God for something, begging the Father for something. Does anybody remember what that is? Yeah, very good. My Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So the cup that Jesus is talking here, this comes out of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. And they would have, the Jews would have known what this meant when they read this, because this was the cup of God's wrath. This is the cup God pours out to wipe away once and for all everything that's wrong with the world. It's the flood that's going to annihilate completely all evil from existence, which, if left to our own devices, includes you and includes me. And that is what is so spectacular about Easter. Because not only does God pour out his wrath, he drinks it himself. And because God did so, because he swallowed up death, we have life. And not only are we rescued from an eternity separated from God, but we're rescued from the daily poison of our own anger and bitterness and malice and slander and bad language. We are no longer bound by those things. My friends, Paul is inviting us to enter into life, to enter into a community that reflects the character of God himself, to throw away these angry outbursts and to embrace this long-fused, slow-boil, patient disposition of a heavenly father who's been calling humanity to himself and pursuing them for the entirety of history. 
And this kind of divine patience is not something that you can just conjure up. I hate to rain on that parade. Um, you can't just make this happen in yourself. And my other question for you is, have you asked God for it? You asked him to, to shape you into the compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving image bearer that you were created to be. Do you have other believers in your life who are holding you accountable to becoming that person? Do you let your kids hold you accountable to becoming that person? This is not something you can do by yourselves, my friends. I know from experience. This is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And just know that as we kind of stumble our way along this very long, bumpy road to sanctification, that we serve a God who is love, a God who forgives, a God who is long of nose, slow to boil, patient, and who bears those qualities, that love, forgiveness, and goodness in a way so far beyond what we could possibly imagine. Will you pray with me this morning?